the reason why I do stuff like this, the reason why I come to New York and come to hang out with you, I mean, it's fun, but it keeps me in the game, it keeps me in the bus. Green lights and blue skies are on their way. Yeah, they're on their way. Do I have a glare on my head? Sergio could tell yeah, you. Yeah, actually, tell look. You. I'll put a <coughs> disclaimer on the, on the screen for folks sensitive to light, wear shades. It's perfect. <laughs> what the f are you laughing at? Very funny. Well, welcome back to Crosstalk. One well, more sip of crack. Uh, welcome to my buddy, <laughs> Neil D. I'm so happy that you're here. First up, happy you're here in New York. Mm -hmm. We're having a great time this weekend. Yep. We hit a Yankee game and a Broadway show and doing all kinds of fun stuff together. So what I want to do is I want to just kind of give you the mic and you have the mic hooked to your, sh your shirt. It's invisible. Just tell everybody whatever you want to tell everybody about how you started, where you went to, how things are. Once I say that, you won't hear from me anymore. Neil, it's all yours. <laughs> Oxycontin. <laughs> what do you want me? Thank you for having me. I love being up here. It's just, it's just fantastic for doing all this. Celsius is starting to kick in a little bit. <laughs> you know, I feel like so much of recovery and what this has been for me. There's, there's a guy by the name of Earl H. He's an AA speaker, and he talks about a lot of what AA is and a lot of what recovery is is about catching the buzz, and not only catching it but keeping it. I caught the buzz down in Florida. I got around a group of men. You were one of them. And they taught me how to have fun. And this really wasn't about not drinking. Addiction is, is nuts because it's the one disease or alcoholism that when you catch it and when you get over it, your life is actually better after it than it would be before it if you never got it. The problem is though, when you're in it, you think it's the only way. It's miserable. Everybody you hang around with is doing the same thing. You don't know any other way. And to get out of it, it's kind of like washing your hands, trying to wash your hands. When you ha your hands are with blood, somebody once said, you're trying to wash your hands off with blood, with blood, when you're, you're all bloody, it just says, it doesn't work. I don't know if any of that made any no, sense. No, it, it did. Well, I mean, the, the problem- When you ha your hands are with blood- You want to get out of it, but- It doesn't work. When you're, you're all bloody, Blood, bloody blood with blood, we're all blood. If you take away the solution, drugs, alcohol, you're really left with what the problem is. For me, it was me. I was the problem. And I was... I, I'm going to interrupt you because I heard you say once the externals weren't really the problem. The internal was the problem. Yeah, we fixed a bunch of external problems with an internal solution. If I'm a parent of an addict or an alcoholic, I'd be thinking to myself, like, what did I do wrong? What, what I've said to my parents, what I would say to other parents is, like, I was born with this. I was born with this attitude of everybody else is better than me. I always felt inadequate. I always felt like something was missing. I always felt like I needed something. I had a great upbringing. I was born in West Palm Beach, Florida, <clears throat> lived in Wellington. We moved to Atlanta when I was five, specifically Roswell. My dad was around. He was a very loving dad. My mom was a fantastic mom. I had a great brother. I had a great upbringing. No trauma. A lot of friends. But I was always searching for something. In, in the beginning, it was really about adrenaline for me. I love doing shit. Am I allowed to say shit? Um, let me just check with our producer. Shit, shit, shit is okay. Shit's yeah. okay. Shit. Before my parents would set the alarm at night, I figured out that if I grabbed a magnet, I'd put it on the sensor 
for the uh, alarm on the window. Close the window. They would set the alarm and I was able to open and close the window without the alarm going off. And I remember like I'd, I'd leave the house at 12, one o'clock in the morning and that feeling of like doing shit that I wasn't supposed to do, it was just like a rush. I loved that. Half the time I didn't have anywhere to go. And my first drink, we're like, we're gonna get fed up. Let me just check with Yeah, we're okay. Is this, is, is this gonna be an issue? No, it's, we're good. You can say anything you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 13, it was going into freshman year. You know, we got all the alcohol we could get, you know, wine coolers, honey brown, Miller lights, and we got hammered. In high school, all week was leading up to the weekends. Where are we gonna go? Who's got the fake ID? Which liquor store are we gonna hit? Did we hit the same one last week? Are they gonna take our card? Which girls are we hanging out with? Whose parents are out of town? Let's go. Like, that's what it was about. I was still able to function during the week. I did band my first semester freshman year. I actually kind of enjoyed that. And it ended up being not for me. I started doing lacrosse and swimming after that. I was on the student council. I was on homecoming court. I had all the tools to like go in a good direction in life. And when it really started to separate from me was one of my buddies said, hey, you want to hit this joint? I didn't even know what we did. I'm like, hell yeah, I want to hit that. And that was like the new thing for me. That's really when my life started to separate from the direction, the trajectory that like my parents had set me up to go in. I started going in a different direction at that moment. And I started smoking before school, started smoking after school, you know, in addition to drinking, and then there was drinking during the week. And that was probably around like my junior year. I was on homecoming court three of the four years. My fourth year, I was not elected because I think people started to see like the group of people that I hung out with started to change. My activities started to change. I started to gain some weight. I didn't swim my senior year too. I mean, like you can't get fucked up all the time and swim. Things started to change. Furthermore, I was living this like sheltered life. Looking back, I was a spoiled little brat. Like everything was really done for me, and I didn't have any desire to leave that. Like I didn't have any desire to go to college, and I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. Except the one thing that I always wanted to be was a dad. With that, a husband as well. I wanted a family. Like I, I always wanted to be a, a dad. I always wanted to be a husband. But I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Nor did I really care. I ended up at Auburn University. Again, set up for success. Great university. Great friends. And like I failed out my freshman year. I came home, started doing a little cocaine, went into a fraternity. I got kicked out of the fraternity after three months. Apparently, you know, partied too hard. You were too crazy for the fraternity? Well, I mean, like, we got caught smoking weed on this ferry boat thing. And they said, like, it's either you two go or it's the whole fraternity. Like, yeah, band of brothers, you know. And uh, so I got kicked out. But the whole time I was telling my parents, like, I'm doing so well in school, I'm, tu I'm tutoring people. You know, like, I was always so full of shit at all times. If I was talking, I was probably lying, <clears throat> you know. I figured that uh, this can't be me. Like, I can't be, I wasn't studying. I was trying to cram. I was smoking all the time. I was doing some coke. I wasn't doing what I needed to do to succeed. But of course, the problem wasn't me. So I must be ADD. So I started taking Adderall. Lo and behold, all my Fs turned into A's. I talked my way back into school. Living like a typical college life. And then one day I came home. One of my friends had this line sitting on the table. Big line. And like, I didn't know if it was cocaine or what it was. But I'm the type of guy, I just take it down without even asking what it was. Nor did I really care. I just want to change the way I felt. After I snorted, I was like, what in God's name of that? And he was like, oxy. I remember going over to the couch and just going face first into it. And on the way down, I remember thinking to myself, if I'm not dead when I wake up, I am definitely doing this shit again. There's a scene in the Iron Man movie. It's, I think it's like the second one. And he had like a bad thing, like his thing in his chest was bad. And he takes it out and he had to change it. And he's like, he can't breathe. And you can tell he's in pain. And then Pepper gets the new one and she plugs it in and it's like, the second it was put into his chest, he's like, 
and he's like back to being Iron Man again. And that's like the closest thing that I can describe to what that was like. It was like the missing piece of the puzzle. Not only did I feel worthy, I felt better than people. I felt like I was a better friend and a better son and a better student. I was a better everything. I was Superman. I wanted more of it, so I kept doing it. What I didn't realize, I had no idea like what physical withdrawal was. Going into like my senior year and like I, when I would stop doing it because it was expensive, my body would hurt. And I thought I had like growing pains and when I finally figured out what that was I got scared it was the first time I really recognized like holy shit I got a problem here so I ran what age I was 20 21 22 so I got scared because I knew I was in physical dependency so I figured I'd run and I wanted to go to a place where there was no drugs no alcohol it was just spiritual right so I moved to Breckenridge Colorado it's a ski town in Colorado and and I went out there I was a photographer on a mountain uh, in, in Breckenridge and like I was the guy who like took your, your picture when you got off the ski lift and like it looking back like it was an amazing experience but when I was out there I would draw for like 10 15 days but all I could think about was the oxy we're on the mountain one day in the Imperial lift uh, it, at the time it was the highest lift in North America 12,668 feet let's call it Boy, it was a beautiful day and I was up there with one of my colleagues we had been drinking we'd smoked a little bit and I got into my head like I want to do some oxy Today. I stuck my finger down my throat. I acted like I was sick. I threw up. I told the guy I was with that I was sick, skied to the bottom of the mountain, told my boss, took my board off, went home, packed a bag, drove to the airport, flew to Atlanta, took an Uber up to my parents' house, stole my mom's wallet, grabbed her ATM card, went to the ATM, got money out, went back downtown, got some drugs, whoop, ripped a line. All in one day. My God. That's what it does to me. That's what putting one mood or mind altering chemical does to me. God help you if you're standing in the way of that. You feel like you need it more than you need air. You need that so bad that nothing else in the world matters. It doesn't matter how much you hurt people. You don't want to hurt people. But when that gets in my brain, it won't leave. God bless uh, the people that, that love us. We don't want anything to stand in our way, and, and we hurt people. The idea of getting that trust back takes quite a long time. The wild part is, is that you want to show up. You want to be a good son. You want to be a good father. You want to be a good husband. You want, I mean, all the above. I didn't use and take drugs to get high. I used them to feel normal. The problem wasn't the drugs and the alcohol. That was the solution. I felt, and I was under the impression, that when I did those things, I was better at all the, those different categories. Right. It's hard. You want to show up, but you can't. Well, I kept doing the next wrong thing for quite some time. I got injured out there, and most people get injured, and they're like, oh, shit. Not me. I get injured, and I'm like, opiates, let's go. Had surgery. I was a loser. I was in my parents' basement for like three or four months. Somehow ended up on this road trip around the country for this toy company. I actually had a pretty good time, and like, you know, things morphed. Like, I really couldn't do a bunch of opiates in the road, didn't have them. And I was on the road for like four years, living in hotels. And like, there was fun mixed in. It wasn't all doom and gloom. But I was drinking. I was smoking. There was a lot of Adderall involved. There was a little bit of Xanax involved. I could convince a doctor to prescribe me anything. I was very good at that. I fell in love with what was soon to be my wife. I always did things based off of what I thought people wanted me to be. I was driving like this teddy bear van around the country, this company called Webkins. I knew that wasn't something that she would want in her partner. So what's a job people would respect? So I came up with some pharmaceutical sales. I had no idea what I was going to be selling. My, my uncle got me this job. So I sat down the first day and they're like, you're going to be selling fentanyl. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this shit up. As you can imagine, it was a mess. I didn't do well. <laughs> I didn't want to work. All I wanted to do was get high. Imagine that. My wife and I soon got engaged. The easiest way to describe what happened, I tried really hard to keep my life together and, and to really show everybody like I was doing fine. And uh, I showed up to marriage counseling one day because there was 
concerns that my family and friends had around me. And I had been approached by loved ones about something's not right with you. And I mean, they could tell. The they told me they knew I was screwed up, but I did everything I could to convince people like, I'm fine. I'm not doing drugs. Whatever I could do to just get people away. People would ask like, I mean, why wouldn't you just ask for help at that moment? It's real easy to say like, oh, just go get help. But it's horrifying. You don't want to live like that in like society. Like you got to be a man and you, you got to provide and like we don't ask for help. You don't ask for help. That's not what that's not what men do. It's a lot of reason why I do what I do now. It's like because there's such a negative connotation on going to rehab and for asking for help. And it's just like, oh man, am I gonna be the, the screw up that went to rehab? I had an intervention and I told everybody I was fine. My bank accounts were overdrawn. <clears throat> credit cards maxed out. Performance improvement plan would work. Relationship with my family sucked. Relationship with my wife sucked. Everything sucked. But I was knew what I was talking about. My wife saved my life at that moment and she said, if you don't go, you can't come home. That's like what's so hard about addiction and loving people is that you have to hold those lines. You know, and like she saved my life and I went, I went for a one week trial at Karen Treatment Centers and I got up there and I was all dressed to the nines. Everybody was worried except me. I expected people in white bathrobes with slippers on walking around like zombies and that just wasn't the case. And there was this guy, that, I forget the guy's name, but he sat with me. I'm telling him like, I don't belong here. Like I have a great job and I'm doing well and da 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 and I come from a good family. Like this is, this is for you guys, it's not for me. And uh, he looks me and I'll never forget he said you know I've been here a couple months now and I gotta tell you you might be the most effed up person I've met yet <laughs> because why don't you sit down shut up and take a little direction and I don't want to ever really talk to me like that that sat with me so I went up and went to my first day meeting that night at Karen and this woman spoke and I remember I sat in the back of the room and I just wept two reasons first of which I really didn't think anyone was like me like I didn't think anyone struggled with the internal messages. I just didn't think anyone was like me. I am unique. Nobody is like me. And this woman, her story was nothing like mine, but it was everything like mine. And it was the first time I could ever admit like, man, I am an alcoholic, I'm an addict. But I said just enough, they call it like superficially compliant. I said just enough to work. I looked like I was surrendered and I was doing the right thing. I wanted to get home, wanted to get back to the work, wanted to get back to the wife. They need me. And I got back. I remember like they told me I couldn't drink. You no longer have that solution and like everybody around you has been working. They have 401ks, they have good jobs, they're moving in the right direction and you just, you feel about that big. Mm -hmm. No one can prepare you for what that feels like. By the way, n none of that actually is happening, it's that how you feel. Exactly. They're no one really gave a shit where I was. Right. Apparently I'm not that important. I remember <clears throat> I was mowing the yard one day and like my wife wasn't home. And I was like, I'm gonna have a beer. I keep telling me I can't drink, but I'm gonna just test it out. I went and got a beer, it was a sweet water. I remember I drank the whole thing and I just kind of looked up at the sky like it was about to fall and nothing happened. I didn't want another one. I didn't want to use drugs. I was good. I just wanted to look normal. I just wanted to drink like everybody else. Like I didn't want the label. I wanted to move forward with my life, not do drugs, but still just be normal, that's it. It's like nothing had ever happened. One thing led to another. And I remember found myself looking at a line of Oxy a couple of months later. And I remember thinking to myself, like, if you do that, you're screwed. Like, you're going to lose everything if you do that. And I've been drinking. When I have mood or mind-altering chemicals, I can't make that decision. And nothing seems more important than what's right in front of me. And that was a line. And I did it. And I was trying so hard to pump the brakes. And a couple of months later, I opened up like a pot in my kitchen and my wife put this note. She was like, oh, look at this stew I made. And she put this note in there like, you're going to be a dad. I was thrilled, but at the same time, I was horrified. And I knew I wasn't ready. The easiest way to describe the next couple of months is uh, going down a mountain with no brakes. 
and you're just trying so hard to stop him and you're just you're going down this mountain you know it's going to crash just a matter of time when it came to the point of my daughter was being born when my daughter popped out it was the happiest moment of my life and i remember looking at her i was holding her in my arms and i just remember saying to her you know i'm going to be the best that i possibly can be i'm going to love you i'm never going to do drugs i'm never going to drink ever again and if you would have hooked me up to a lie detector i would have passed that very moment there's this thing called denial. Don't even notice I am lying. I was back at it. Spring of 2018, I went a couple of months without doing drugs and alcohol, and I just froze up. Paralyzing anxiety. I had no faith, no hope, I, I, no communication skills. Like, I was just frozen. I went on a family vacation with my wife and my daughter. She was like coming up on one. She was like 10 or 11 months old. I remember on the way down there, like my wife had to take the wheel and she had to drive because I couldn't even drive my family down to Florida because I was, I was falling asleep at the wheel. And we get down there and she went down to the beach. She was taking some sun and my responsibility was my daughter was taking a nap and I was going to watch the monitor. Well, I had taken Xanax that day. I fell asleep. She comes back up, my daughter's crying. And I wake up and I start screaming at my wife. She starts screaming at me. This is your fault. Like, I'm so stressed out and you're putting all this pressure on me. And I, I left. I came back and she had the Klonopin out on the couch. And she looks at me and she says, that's it, I'm done. I want a divorce. And I remember she's like, what do you want me to do? And I looked at her and like, I, I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I had no faith. And I looked at her, I said, you should run, run. Like, I just didn't know which way was up. And we found out it was like three or four hours later that she was pregnant with our next one. I just couldn't stop. She kicked me out of the house. I went over to my parents' house and I took like every drug I could find. I wasn't trying to kill myself, but I was really in the impression that I was better dead than a lot of people around me. I remember dropping to my knees and just screaming at God. What is wrong with me? Why are you doing this to me? Why have you made me this way? Like, I cannot live one more day like this. And I was out. And I woke up the next morning, sun was coming up, I was out on the porch. Something had happened to me, you know, and I was, I was ready. This is hitting bottom. I would say that was bottom. Yeah. Guys, we finally hit bottom. Enough of what it was like. You know, we're into what happened now. What the hell? I opened my phone. See, I got an email. Guess who it was from, Corey? Karen Treatment Centers. Holy cow. Checking on their alumni. I just woken up from an all-night bender, you know? Cool. And I said, well, shit. Well, they probably know what I should do. And I walk in. I was the first time I was like, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. First time in my life I said that. And uh, you notice a smile is coming over my face because I know what's coming, you know? Now we're this, by the way, now ladies and gentlemen, yeah. this is why I, I stay very close to this yeah. guy. Yeah. Now we're getting into the good shit, you know what I mean? And he said, you should go back to Karen. And I was like, <laughs> whoa. Whoa, I've got a lot of stuff coming up. Yeah, but I agreed. I said that you're right, and you know, I went to. I, I wanted to button up some stuff with work. He wanted me to go immediately, but I, I, my work had done so much for me, and it was a good company that cared about me. I was on a performance improvement plan. They were about to fire me, but I called them and I said, "Hey, I'm screwed up. This is Cook Medical. All right, this is what kind of company they are." They were trying to fire me. Called HR and I said, "Guys, I'm screwed up. I'm an addict. I need to go to rehab." And they said, "Listen, go. You take as much time as you need." We're going to pay you your full salary with bonuses, medical benefits, everything when you're out. Go get help. Wow. Yeah, no shit. So I had my last drink, June 12th, 2018. I was in a movie theater. I had three glasses of red wine. I don't really know why I chose that as my last drink. Am I going too long here? This is so great. I love talking about me. I had my last drink. I went home. I spent my last morning with my daughter and off I went. I remember being in a taxi on the way to Karen, you know, back roads of Pennsylvania. 
beautiful. Looking out the window, and I'm thinking to myself, I can see it. There's no hope. Best case, you're gonna live a life where you, maybe you can make it through not drinking and doing drugs, but you're gonna be miserable. It's gonna be this miserable life. And I got there, first off. I didn't drink. I didn't wanna come in hot like a lot of people did because the detox they had before was like the little house of horrors. I mean, it was just, it was like the walking dead in there. And I walk in and I do the drug test and alcohol and she's like, you're sober. I'm like, well, if I would have known that you built this brand new facility, you know, I would have come in absolutely hammered. In my first week, I missed my first Father's Day, my daughter's first birthday, and my dog died. Hank, I was so, uh, I always wanted to be a dad. That's all I wanted to freaking be. And I missed my first Father's Day. And he came out, I'm sitting on the lawn, and he said, you know, Neil, you're gonna miss this Father's Day, but it's gonna make for a real good second, third, fourth, and so on, Father's Days. There's this other guy by the name of Tony Grimmel. He came in, and we were having a conversation around God, and he asked me how my relationship with God was, and I said, my relationship with God is great. I go to church, I pray, everything's, everything's good. And he's like, you're in rehab, dude. How good can it be? Your relationship with God sucks. He's like, you're going you're gonna to do the group of drunks, God, G-O-D, group of drunks. And I made it from that moment, like, I, I never did anything alone. Like, I got in with these guys, Craig. And Andy, I'm still best friends with these guys today. I was in Karen, Pennsylvania for six weeks. I started to have fun, I started to work out. My wife, she held the line. Everybody hated me back home with very good reason. I knew if I went home, I was screwed. If I went home, I, I was set up for failure. I let loose in group one day and I was like, I need help, like I can't go home. And there was this guy, Phoenix Adams, he was in group that day and he goes, hey, I got somewhere where you can go. It's another Karen facility, it's down in Florida, it's called Ocean Drive. That night, there was this guy, he was, he was the AA speaker and his name was Bill. First thing he said was, you need to go to Crossroads, 7 a.m., you get there, you ask for John and Jimmy. I was like, all right, I can do that. And then he goes, raise your hand, tell me you're a sponsor, then shut the hell up. So I went down there and, like, and I got in, you know, raised my hand, asked for a sponsor, I met these guys, and there's this guy by the name of John. He says, <laughs> you know, the whole not drinking thing is a big part of this program. But right. he looks at me and he says, we'll see you tomorrow. I guess I'll see you tomorrow, you know? But I felt very important that I showed up the next day and I started to show up every freaking day. And then my main man, Pots and Pans, Craig, he came down, man, it was me and him. Shoulder to freaking shoulder. There was a storm in front of us. We locked arms and we said, we're walking through this shit together. And we went every day together. We did everything together. We knew everything about each other. Every problem that came up, we knew. I mean, he was just like, I wouldn't have been able to do it without him. It's one thing to get into a group of guys that have been sober a while. It's another thing to walk through a guy and do it together. And I know yeah. Craig, and he would be saying the exact same thing oh, yeah. were he sitting in this chair. Yeah, yeah. It just started to get so fun. And it wasn't about just going to AA. It was about fellowship and going to workouts on Saturday and taking care of yourself. What are we gonna do tonight? Like, let's have a, let's have a pizza party at somebody's house. And Music. Let's go to the beach world, let's go to a concert. We just started to have fun. Somebody else knew everything about me. For the first time in my entire life, I didn't have one secret. There was one thing left. I was lighter. I stopped flying and I started soaring. I caught the buzz. I caught the freaking buzz. And I made it my full-time job. I'm gonna do nothing but build a sober network. And man, the guys that I, Ooh.
says a million times, but every time I get emotional. Guys like you, just I'm gonna miss a million people, but you know who you are. I mean. What's going on right now, I hope it shows anybody who needs help that there's another way. Yeah, I was just, I was never alone. I got into the program. It was the only thing that was important to me at the time, and it was it's very selfish to say that considering I was going through a divorce, I had a one-year-old, my wife was pregnant, I had all these things going on, but like my only mission was to build that network, and I thank God I did. I was so comfortable going back home. Can I have, can I have a fucking tissue or something? I got snot coming out of my nose. Hey, thank you. Cheap with the tissue, though, I tell you that. That's all I need. Now we're good. We're good. You want to get rid of that? Or you... you... Yeah, good throw in there. It'll be the next time you visit, we'll get it. I got back home. I was super uncomfortable. It felt like a fish out of water. Like I had that network. That was my strength. That's what was keeping me sober. And I would go home and I just didn't have anybody. Slowly but surely, I started building a life. I got back home, moved into my apartment December 13, 2018, and I got the sponsor named JoJo. And JoJo spoke out of a Drake dude. He would require things of me, like I read page 86, 87 of the big book every day. He decided that I should go to a meeting every day and call him every day. None of which I did. And when I wouldn't call him, he would just be like, you know what, it's all good. It's not working out. Like there's, there's guys that are in this program that don't call their sponsor every day and don't go to any meetings every day. Like it's not working out, it's all good. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. So I started calling him every day. He believed in a 365 out of 365. You get your ass to a meeting every day. And I started to. I started going to regular meetings regularly. I was still in love with my wife. I was going through a divorce. She was pregnant. I just wanted to be with my kids. It's, it's understandable that no one would trust me with them. When I were in early 2019, my second daughter was born. I met her over FaceTime. She's my FaceTime baby. So I found myself for a year sober. I was trying to learn how to be a dad, single dad, with an infant and a two-year-old, and go to meetings. And it was a freaking mess, but you know, like I did it with my guys and like I started to have fun as a dad. Yeah, it was, it was the best time of my life. I don't know how I did it. I never thought I could do it, but it's amazing what you can do when you have an amazing network and you're sober. It's like you have superpowers. The divorce and all that stuff was over and came into 2020 and this just like beautiful time happened. The relationship with my ex-wife started to get better and I was able to use the principles of AA with her and like people around me. And like I had more friends than I knew what to do with. I was a dad, you know, COVID hit. And like, I know there's atrocious things happening in the world. It was a wonderful time in my life. I had time to be able to be with my kids. AA has taught me to communicate. It's given me that solution to the problem, which was me. And like you work the steps and it starts to fundamentally change who you are as a human being. You relinquish all power. You recognize someone knows more than you and has more power than you do or something has more power than you do. You give your entire life to it. You wash away all your secrets. You start flying. You feel weightless. You look at your character defects. You know, you start getting into making amends to people and you clear your side of the street. Each day you have somebody analyze not only what you're doing, but what you're thinking, especially lying. I would lie about ridiculous shit. What did you have yesterday to eat? and I had a cheeseburger. Oh, well, I, I had a salmon Caesar salad is what I had. No dipshit, you had a cheeseburger and people would call me on it. My sponsor would and he would make me call those people and say, hey, I lied to you. Enough times doing that and being embarrassed and it, it started to change how I interacted with the people around me. It's not about not drinking. I mean, that's not what this is about for me. I mean, it's about taking one step forward each day. Some days I don't get a step forward, but I don't take a step back. Once you take care of yourself, other people who need help, you're there. There were so many other people there for you. You don't know how much help you provide to other people just by being you. You know, then if you want to put that into words, I suppose the words are, you know, I want to give to other people what was freely given to me. Yeah. I got to pee. 
At this stage of the game, we're going to pause for a urination break. He's amazing. I think what I, I really caught was so far. Um, he said that he like, got to a point where he didn't have anything that he helped him break as far as blind. And I, I do that too, but it, it's small things that I think are okay to lie about. But if he said clearing your part of the street, like right. you're not helping out your community by keeping those things. And like and every guest that comes on, I'm like, it's you know. The, yeah. I've like he said it a couple different times that it was it's not the problem, just the way you were in the solution. Like that definitely, dude. You're you're rocking it. Hi. You're rocking it. All right, hold on, give me a second. Now I peed. What it's like now? It's a simple life, and I think a lot of people would look at my life and be like, "That's boring." I live a pretty disciplined life. My priorities are sober, dad, employed, in that order. I mean, like, I love being a dad. I take my kids all over the country. We, we do ridiculous things together. Like, I, I love being a dad more than anything on the face of this earth. I love the discipline. I love doing the same thing every day. I'm like, I'm, I'm a 3.30 a.m. wake up guy. I leave for the gym at 3.45. I get to the gym at 4 a.m. I stretch till 4.15, 4.15 to 5 a.m. I work out 5 a.m. or 5 a.m. to 5.30. I swim 5.30 to 5.45. I'm in the sauna. Boom, back home. Suit on, walk the dogs, get to work. Like it's it's like that. When I don't have my kids, and when I have my kids, it's the same way. Like I still wake up early, I still take time for myself. I go to bed at 7 38 o'clock, but I get to show up for the people around me. You know, and there was so long that I wanted to show up for the people around me, but I just couldn't. And now like the way I get high, just I get I love showing up for the people around me. I do things where like I wake up and I don't have to worry about what I did the day before because I live like it's a very simple, clean life. I'm very open about my sobriety. If they don't know who to ask for help, they're never gonna do it. I've developed being comfortable with who I am. And like, I don't expect for everybody to like me, but I am not gonna be somebody else just because that's who I think you want me to be anymore. In my humble opinion, the more people that do things like crosstalk, that we can talk about it and make it normal. It's not that I look down upon people that drink. There's moments that I feel bad. You don't need that. I go to concerts, I go to bars, I've dated happy hours and sales meetings and it's like I just don't need it. I love being able to be the sober guy that drives everybody home. Like I love not being hungover. I love waking up at 6 a.m. on a Saturday. Like, but You know what I love? I love remembering what I did yesterday. It's fantastic. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's yeah. great. I, I just I love when people think that this life is just so boring. Like last night, after we got back from the show, I came back and like I remember sitting on your couch. Beautiful apartment, by the way. Great accommodations. Highly recommend coming up here for crosstalk. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm lying on the couch and I couldn't wait to go to sleep. My hero, Harry Chapin, said, it's not the getting there, it's the going that really matters. Mm -hmm. And if anybody's going, it's Neil D. If I sit back, relax, and wait you know, for, to have a better relationship, not only with God, but the people around me, probably going to happen. Taking time out of my day to thank him for what I have, even in the worst moments. Like, Andy was like two. She had just potty trained. I woke up at like two in the morning, and she is screaming bloody murder. I ran into the room, and she had like... All over, and I just went into dad mode, and like I, like forklift up. There was just dookie all over us both, just like poop everywhere. And I grabbed her, bear hugged her, and I took her straight in the shower. Clothes on, she had pajamas on, and like I held her, and we sat in the shower, and like she was crying, but then she stopped, 
and like the water was running over us and like there was just dookie everywhere. But like I remember sitting there and looking up at God and being like, thank you. The more I seek, more filled with gratitude I am. I'd say 85, 90% of the things that you've said that has nothing to do with alcohol and drugs. Yeah. It has to do with living. It has to do with learning how to follow a path, connecting with other people, being lifted up when you need help from other people, and being able to lift other people up when they need help. That's really what this is about. It's got nothing to do with any of the drugs that you named or alcohol. It has to do with living. And if you're relying on something outside, whether it's food or gambling or alcohol or drugs or smoking or whatever it might be, it ain't working. Mm -mm. It's going to help for a short period of time, but it ain't going to work. You and I can do this all day long, but they're going to stop watching. So we've got to end this at some point. Can I give you a hug? I don't know why we wouldn't. That would be a really good thing to do. Let's do it. Let's go to a wide camera shot. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You're the best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay, I'm going to take a picture of you guys. We, we, don't, we don't want any pictures.